Welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. Today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as he explores the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. We are up to 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. 1 Kings 5, 1, but like we often do, I'd like to back up a few verses to the previous chapter, to 1 Kings 4, 30. And the reason this time is... I just attended a week-long creation conference in Pittsburgh, and what is written here about Solomon is very relevant to the creation, the Christians who are scientists who teach creation as we read in Genesis and the global flood. They teach these things to the world, and their presentations was similar to what we read about Solomon here. And so I'd like to reread this, and we'll, we'll see, then I'll tie it into the creation conference. In verse 30, Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. So he had, he had a lot of wisdom. He looked to God for wisdom, and God gave it to him. And the Bible promises us in James chapter 1 that if we ask God for wisdom, believing, in faith, trusting, we will get wisdom. He will give it to us. Verse 32, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Verse 33, also he spoke of trees. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, that is of insects, and of fish. So Solomon was fascinated by nature. And if you think about the study of nature, where is the beginning of the study of nature? That's in Genesis chapter 2, when God said to Adam, God had just created the world for Adam. And he said, now look at these animals, and I'd like you to name the animals. And we have a classification system of names that has been refined over the many centuries. But famous Christians, scientists, are basically the men who are the fathers of modern biology, like John Ray and uh, Carl Linnaeus. These guys gave us our classification system, the binomial names, the genus name and the species name. And they were Christians. They were creationists. Where else in the Bible do we read a special focus on God's creation and specifically the creation of animals to sort of show off God, to show how great he is? Well, it's in the book of Job chronologically the first book in the Bible written. And in the book, Job, he starts out with a solid understanding of his place with God, but then his counselors are very worldly, very deceptive, and eventually Job's thinking gets twisted. And he starts to believe what they're saying, like somehow God did this to punish me, and... I didn't do anything worthy of this kind of punishment. My kids are killed. And so God didn't do anything in that story, and certainly not to punish Job. 
That's We know that from reading the first couple chapters. But Job's friends, being human beings and envious of his authority and influence, I think they sort of celebrated his misery. And they wanted to say, hey, Job, you deserve this. This was done to you by God. So fess up. What did you do? And so Job, he started to get seduced into that kind of thinking, and he couldn't think of what he would have done to deserve having all his kids killed and all that he was inflicted with. So he started to say, I want to stand before God and make my case. I will justify myself before God. And so then through, you know, 38 chapters that goes on. And then God appears to Job and he has this opportunity. So God says, okay, Job, go ahead, make your case. And to paraphrase, Job says, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And that's it. That's the end of Job's defense. Because he realized when he stood before God, how broken he was compared to a holy and mighty God. So then God goes into a number of chapters where he wants Job and all of mankind to realize how great God is and that we could trust him in so many ways. But so much of those chapters is about animals. God goes from one animal to another to another. He's so proud of the animals that he created. And it doesn't matter whether it's a stork or if it's a behemoth. Uh, God loves these animals. And so when you go to a creation conference and you have men who love God first, secondly, they're creationists, thirdly, they're scientists, and they study the way God designed animals and creeping things, and God's brilliance is transcendent and far beyond our ability to grasp even the slightest bit of it. Uh, ants, you know, there are thousands and thousands of different kinds of ants. You know how the Bible says, look to the ant. Well, we used to look at the ant and see how industrious it was and thought, boy, if we worked as hard as the ant, we'd probably all be wealthy. But now scientists could look at the ant and they could peer inside its body made up of millions of cells, and they could peer inside its cells made up of thousands, many thousands of genes. And those genes, evolutionists have said that, well, all ants are descended from a common ant, and so their DNA is going to show that they're all closely related. Well, in every ant they have studied so far, there have been a thousand genes, a thousand, that are completely unlike any other gene known in the animal kingdom or among ants. So God, imagine God is making thousands upon thousands, more than 10,000 ant species, and in each one, he does the most amazing, brilliant, diverse, unique design and engineering in each little ant. We don't even, we got red ants and we got carpenter ants and we got black ants and they're just mostly an annoyance to us. So when 
God wants to tell men to focus on how great he is. Repeatedly, he points to his creation. And Paul in the book of Acts pointed to the God, our creator on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And hey, there's a creator. And from one blood, God made all the nations of the world. So I'll end with a mention about those Christians. Uh, William Paley uh, wrote a book called Natural Theology way back in about 1800. And uh, John Ray, Carl Linnaeus, these were fathers of modern biology. And they, they helped us. They created the classification system that the whole world uses. Now, we modify it, but they created this binomial two-name system to identify living creatures. In the beginning of both of their careers, they followed a false teaching that Charles Darwin was also taught. Charles Darwin's mentor believed in what, we call, what they call fixity of species or the immutability of species. And immutability, of course, was an obsession of Aristotle, Plato, and everybody who followed those guys like, like um, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. But they thought when God created a species, that species could not change at all. When God created a kind, it had to be the same forever, had to be immutable. God is immutable. What he created had to be immutable. Well, that turned out to be false. And living creatures, organisms, can change quite a bit. They don't change from a dog to a cat, but dogs could change to be very heavy, furry creatures, large if they're living, say, during the Ice Age up north, and all the skinny and short-haired dogs die. So you end up with a breed of dogs that are, have long hair. Um, but could a dog change into a cat? No. Well, the Christians believed the false teaching of immutability of species, and that has brought a tremendous amount of mocking on the church and on Christians and creationists. But both John Ray and Carl Linnaeus both rejected that fixity while they were still writing. They both rejected it, and they adopted the modern understanding that we have to this day. So that's um, from 1 Kings, the, la the last verse of, well, the end of chapter 4 there. Solomon was so wise, he spoke of trees, he spoke of animals, of birds, of insects, and of fish. These things fascinated Solomon. And then all men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So now we go into chapter 5, and you've heard of the cities of Tyre and Sidon. If you think of the Mediterranean, they are coastal cities on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Think of where Israel is, and just above north of Israel is Lebanon. Well, these cities are on the coast today in Lebanon. So back in the Bible times, they were considered just north of, like they are today, of Israel proper. You had Sidon, 
This is, uh, well, we're going to read about the king of Tyre. And Tyre is closer to Israel than Sidon. Sidon is about 20 miles further north up the coast. And this king of Tyre, well, we'll hold off for a few minutes to talk about his relationship with Sidon and then with King David and then David's son, Solomon. So let's go to verse 1, 1 Kings 5.1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. Now this king, we read about him in the Bible. We also read about him in ancient history. About 200 years before Jesus, there was a historian from the city of Ephesus, which is in what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor. And that historian's name is Menander. And Menander wrote about the earliest kings in this region where today is Lebanon. And he wrote about Hiram and Hiram's father. He told of the amazing building projects that Hiram did in the city of Tyre. He also wrote of Hiram and Solomon exchanging riddles to one another. So you can imagine how, you know, Hiram loved David. Solomon is David's son, the new king. So they want to have a good relationship between their two nations. Now, Hiram is called the king, but in the ancient world, there were many city-states where the city, if it was big enough, would have a king. If it was smaller, it might have a patriarch, like the head of the household like Abraham. Abraham was not a king, but he was the patriarch of a tribe of people who today we call the Israelites. Now, Hiram was the king of Tyre, and Tyre and Sidon were like city-states, but they also had a sphere of influence. And for example, they had daughter villages, we read about, when God prophesied the destruction of Tyre and Sidon. And those daughter villages, today we would call them suburbs. So they were big enough to have suburbs. Uh, Josephus, he wrote about three centuries after Menander of Ephesus. Josephus was in Rome. He was a Jew. He wrote The Antiquities of the Jews and the wars of the Jews. And uh, Josephus added something about Hiram, just a little detail. He said that he reigned on the throne for 34 years, and he died when he was age 53. So we get a little bit of an idea, right? Obama will be reigning on the throne for a total of eight years, right? Is that what we call it, reigning on the throne? For eight years, and in eight years... I'd say he, you could destroy a whole country, except Bush had eight years also toward the same end. So, but you could do a lot in eight years, 16 years, and then double that, 32 years. So 34 years on the throne, Hiram had a, a big impact on Tyre and on the region. So verse two, then Solomon sent to Hiram saying, 
You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side. So David's hands, the Israelites said Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Wow. But David also killed the innocent, remember, with Uriah. So it was not only that David was preoccupied with war, but David also had blood on his hand. I think partly, well, primarily because of his sin, but partly because he was a man of war. And when you're fighting all the time, killing people all the time, it's not all that difficult for human beings than to kill somebody who they shouldn't kill. That's a great tragedy, but that is much of the human condition. So Solomon is saying, David could not build a house that is a temple, right? They had the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was a tent. And it was pretty old. I'm sure it had been repaired and replaced many times, whole sections of cloth. But the tabernacle was a big tent. I think it was mostly in disuse through those centuries from Joshua until the time of Solomon. But Solomon says his father David could not build the temple because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. And that, of course, is an idiomatic expression, meaning that Israel had victory, military victory over their enemies. So that is the nation that Solomon inherited, a nation that was, for the most part, victorious. But then Solomon, he consolidated that power and the prosperity that could have been David's, except for all the sin and destruction throughout David's reign. So Solomon consolidated that. And verse 4, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. So there are no armies at Israel's borders, nor are there marauders pillaging the countryside and the villages. There's peace and prosperity. Solomon had so much going for him. What a great tragedy that he lost everything. Even likely his very soul. Building altars to other gods, becoming an idolater, tremendous sexual immorality that is legendary. He lost everything. Verse 5. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. So Solomon is quoting a prophecy that's in our Bible in the book of Second Samuel. And I'd like to quote those two verses for you. The prophecy itself is uttered by the prophet Nathan, but it's in the book of Samuel. Samuel 
his book we divided into two, first and second Samuel. The uh, Jews had never done that. I described this a while back, why we do it when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek so that the Roman world could read, because the Roman world didn't read Hebrew. So at the request of a, a librarian in Alexandria in Egypt, about 70 rabbis in Jerusalem worked to translate the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, into Greek. They did so, we call that the Septuagint. When they did that, having a large scroll is extremely expensive. Even today, if you're going to print a 1,400-page book, that's going to cost a lot of money. So we'll create volumes, volume one, two, three, sort of like Lord of the Rings. Tolkien wrote it as one book. And the publisher during World War II, he said, are you crazy? There's not that much paper in all of Britain. So he, he published it in three volumes. So the Septuagint, they decided to break up Samuel, the book of Samuel, into two. They did the same with Kings, the same with Chronicles. They did the same with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so what is important is that the, is that the text is the same. So we think of 2 Samuel and we might downplay Samuel's role in that, because here's Nathan talking to David, but it, it really is Samuel, the book of Samuel. And so, and by the way, Samuel is the prophet most identified with Israel's kingdom. We learn that in Acts chapter 3, although it's a bit subtle, but we see that beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who follow. It's like, why, why did Peter begin with Samuel? What was Moses? What was Enoch? Chop liver? I mean, why, why begin the list of the prophets with Samuel? Well, it's because Peter was talking about the kingdom, Israel's kingdom. And if you're talking about the prophets of the kingdom, you're not going to start with Enoch. He wasn't a prophet of the kingdom. You're not going to start with Moses. You'll start with Samuel because he anointed the first king who was Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul was the first in Israel's kingdom, just like Paul was the first in the body, and he was also Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. So there is this parallel that God worked out in the lives of these two people. So Samuel is most identified with Israel's kingdom. He anointed the first king. And then he anointed the king whose descendants would include the eternal one, the everlasting king, Jesus Christ. So it is in the book that bears his name, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that we read the prophet saying to David, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. What does that mean, your seed after you? One of your children, one of your sons, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is a messianic prophecy. It was true of Solomon, 
because Solomon built the temple, God's house, but that wasn't the primary fulfillment of that prophecy. The primary fulfillment was with the Messiah. That house that Solomon built was eventually destroyed. It was rebuilt by Ezra and then rebuilt or refurbished again in the time of Herod. So the house that would be eternal would be the house built by Jesus Christ, who was also a descendant of David. That would be the house of Israel. Those in the covenant of circumcision who trusted God, they are part of God's eternal kingdom, the house of Israel. Whereas we are members of his body, so we are part of what Paul terms the household of faith because we are saved by grace through faith alone. Israel had a covenant of circumcision and God required of them that they circumcise and that they keep the Sabbath and the dietary law and the baptisms. God required that of them. And if they would have said, well, I believe in God, but I'm not going to circumcise. Beware. God said, if you commit a high-handed sin, a presumptuous sin under the Mosaic law, I will not forgive you. So a big difference between the covenant of law, which was Israel's covenant, and the covenant of grace, which is our covenant, God be praised for what he has done for us. So, so Solomon is telling King Hiram about the temple that he plans to build. In verse 6, now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon, we read about them throughout the Bible. And it's like in America, we think of the redwoods in California and the great sequoias. And when I first traveled to Northern California, I remember driving through one of the redwoods with, I had an old Ford van in the Conaline, 1970. I remember, maybe 69. I remember driving through the tree because they had carved an archway under the tree. Now uh, we've gone there since and they don't let you do that anymore because they're party poopers or they have a good reason for it. I don't know. But we take such pride I, in, in a good way in the trees that God has created and how they have been able to grow in the Northwest. They're just awesome. They fill you with awe just seeing them and standing at their base. And so it was the same way in Israel in the Old Testament with the cedars of Lebanon. And so Solomon is saying to the king of Tyre, command that your workers cut down cedars for me from Lebanon and my servants will be with your servants. I'll provide some of the workforce and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. That's pretty neat, right? That's an indication that they trust one another. Now, when national leaders trust one another, sort of like Reagan said, trust but verify. Uh, and it's often the same thing in our own relationships. But there obviously is a degree of trust and when you could operate on that trust, it enables you to trust even more. 
And so that's neat. And when people undermine trust, and that makes a marriage relationship difficult, a parent-child, business relationships, and so on. So I will pay you wages according to whatever you say. For you know that there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So the Sidonians, you know, today we'd say, nobody knows how to make a watch like the Swiss. Stop the tape, stop the tape. Hi, this is Nicole McBurney again, and we are out of time for today, but we will finish this study next Thursday. If you want to help us stay on the air, please go to kgov.com slash store, or you can sponsor a show at kgov.com slash sponsor. That's kgov.com slash sponsor. We really appreciate all your support and hope to see you here again tomorrow for Real Science Radio.